Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation on Reformed Theology. This is episode number 351. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. I'm delighted to be back with you today. We've got a great panel and a great book uh, scheduled for discussion today. Let me introduce to you first our regular. We have Jared Oliphant, who is regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to the program, Jared. It's great to speak with you today. Thanks, Camden. Great to be on again. We also have with us uh, Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is President and Samuel C. Patterson, Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Dr. Kruger. It's great to have you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the endurance of that long title. (laughs) (laughs) Right, getting longer and longer, yeah. You've got that nice uh, German last name. Maybe we could come up with one word that encompasses it all. I know. I'm going to look for that. (laughs) We're very pleased to welcome also to the program for the very first time, Dr. Charles E. Hill, who is John R. Richardson, Chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hill. It's great to have you with us. Thanks very much. Very nice to be with you. Well, it's a joy to have you with us today. We're very pleased to be speaking about a wonderful book here, How God Became Jesus, The Real Origins of Belief in Jesus' Divine Nature. It is uh, published by Zondervan, 2014. This is actually a critical response to a recent book by Bart Ehrman. His book was titled, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. Uh, But today we're going to be speaking about an orthodox response and uh, what we believe is a faithful response to this question and uh, looking at uh, the particular chapters and excursies that were written and contributed by Dr. Hill today. But before we get started, I do need to mention very briefly that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We rely on the generous support of all of our listeners and viewers uh, to uh, help us continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Please visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. And we want to thank everybody that's helped us out for the six and a half or so years that we've been online. And uh, we look uh, forward to many, many more. But visit us online today, and we thank you so much for your support of everything we do here at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Uh, uh, Dr. Hill, I do uh, want to thank you first uh, for coming on the program and also for uh, writing your contributions in this book. Would you mind giving us a bit of a history of how this book came about? I just read uh, Dr. Ehrman's uh, response to the book, and he talked a little bit about how there was a desire from Zondervan and, and from the editors here, uh, Michael Byrd being the general editor, uh, to to write a response even before the book was available to the public. How did you come aware of this project, and uh, how did it all unfold? Right. Well, I didn't know anything about it until uh, I got an email from Mike Bird one day, and he explained it to me. Uh, made me aware that that Bart was writing a book. I think he Bart had uh, had blogged about it a little bit, and when Mike Bird found out about it, I believe he said he it was at uh, it was at SBL, and uh, he saw some. Uh, advertisement for it, and he thought, "Oh, great! You know, I'm not going to be bombarded with emails from people who uh, are uh, confused by what Bart Ehrman's latest book says." So mm-hmm. he thought he would try to organize a preemptive uh, response, and I ended up getting a call to respond to the 
sections in Ehrman's book that deal with the early church beyond the New Testament evidence. So uh, it was it was a, a very much a rush deal. Uh, it was it was really kind of exciting, kind of one of those uh, uh, you know like a finals week, uh, <laughs> stay up all night sort of thing. You eat pizza at three in the morning, but it's it it, it all came together over the over the holidays as well last year. So uh, getting done with the grading, and then getting you know having the holidays. Uh, it didn't give us very much time to write. So uh, some people would say, well, that probably shows. But uh, I think that, you know, in God's good providence, it, it came together uh, mm-hmm. really quite well. Uh, so that's that's the quick background story on it. We didn't have a lot of time to write, but it was a pretty amazing uh, thing to see these five authors coordinating, you know, through uh, through email and such and pulling it together in a matter of weeks. Yeah, and I think that it does show that uh, the book as a whole is uh, quite excellent and useful. And, of course, you're leaning on the expertise of many different scholars. There are contributions in this volume from Michael Bird, Craig Evans, Simon Gathercole, uh, Charles Hill, whom we're speaking with, and Chris Tilling. Uh, so people would be interested to know that there are many different chapters in this book, and they all address uh, the main arguments of uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, book. Um, maybe we could start with a quick summary um, from both of you, uh, Dr. Hill and also Dr. Kruger, because you're in this field, uh, about what Bart Ehrman is trying to do here in this book, How Jesus Pe- Became God. For anyone who hasn't heard the name Bart Ehrman, I imagine that's that's just a few people who listen to this program at least. What is his overall project, and what what's he generally known for? Well, Ehrman... Uh has written a number of similar sort of books where he sort of takes some major tenet of Christianity, particularly early Christianity, and then challenges its validity historically and otherwise. And he's done this with, uh, you know, authorship of books um, in his book Forged. He's done it, you know, in terms of, you know, apocryphal literature and, and, and some of his other works. And this one he decides to hone in on early Christology, which is early views of Jesus, particularly early views of Jesus' divinity. And Ehrman basically wants to challenge the orthodox view that Jesus is God. Um, he does this in a number of ways, but the essence of it is that he claims that Jesus never thought he was God, nor did he claim he was God. But early Christians eventually begin to think of Jesus as God. And then finally, at the end of the day, begin to think that he was really the God of the universe, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah. And so Ehrman decides to, in this book, sort of uh, give us an overview of how he thinks that unfolded. Uh, you know, how do you get from A to B? How do you get from just a mere man to, to being God? And so he constructs his case that Jesus never claimed to be God. He does this by sort of limiting what he thinks was authentic Jesus material. And then he talked about how G, you know, early Christians sort of saw him as semi-divine, kind of along the lines of an angel. Uh, and then eventually over time, uh, his divinity grew and grew and grew. And so ultimately, Ehrman has what you might call an evolutionary view of Christology. Now, of course, he denies that. He would not call it his own view evolutionary. But when you start reading his book, it's clear that there is a progression uh, over time of the different views of Jesus that ultimately end up with him fully God. So when you start off as fully man and as fully God, there has to be some evolutionary dimension to it. So that's the essence of Ehrman's claim, which, of course, is very different than the orthodox position where Jesus knew he was God, claimed to be God, and that Christians thought he was God precisely for those reasons. And so Ehrman uh, has, has made his case, and many, including Chuck and the authors of his book, have responded. And so it's a it's a lively topic, but that's the essence of Ehrman's argument. Ehrman presents this as uh, as the fruit of historical research, pure and simple. Uh, he 
he says that he's not making any theological claims, that people, of course, are free to believe that Jesus is, is God. He, there, he has these disclaimers, you know, that he's not out to uh, disprove that. He can't prove one way or the other whether Jesus is God. But that's, that turns out to be a little bit uh, seemingly uh, dodgy uh, of a thing to say because it's, it's as like saying, well, if you want to believe the moon's made of green cheese, go ahead. You know, just that there's no scientific, no historical reason for it. That's all. Uh, so that that's kind of the that that's the historian's approach that he he takes or he purports to take. That this is a purely historical uh, endeavor and using purely historical means. Now, I think Mike and I would both agree that uh, he does more than simply uh, history uh, in in the book. Uh, there's there's quite a bit of uh, theology. Really, there's uh, there are value judgments uh, made and so forth. Yeah, it's hard to do bare history anyway. I mean, right. there aren't brute facts, at least in our view. And there's always historiography involved, but a certain view of the world that's involved whenever you're examining facts, you're looking at them in a certain way, and that comes to right. comes to bear in your second chapter. But Jared, do you have a question? Well, I was just also going to mention that we we mentioned that uh, Airman has a response to to this response book, um, like we said before, and then Michael Bird posts it on his blog. Um, I think uh, if I'm characterizing Airman correctly, he he tends to say that okay, I'm presenting a narrative of from from point A to point B, and I don't see any other narratives out there. So it's either this or you know your conservative theology. And what I think Bird mentions is Larry Hurtado's work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I picked that up and mentioned it because, Mike, you studied under, under him, obviously, and, and was wondering if um, either or both of you could comment on the significance of that work in particular and why that may feel, uh, fill some of the historical gaps that Airman might not refer to on the conservative side. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's read Ehrman's book is a little surprised that he didn't interact more with Hurtado or with Bauckham, for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when you have Tato and Bauckham, obviously two major players uh, regarding early Christology, and, and I suppose you could add uh, Dunn to that list, too, which he doesn't really interact much with either. Um, you, you know, one is perplexed. I suppose Ehrman could always hide behind the, well, I'm writing for a popular audience type response. Uh, fair enough. But then to turn around and claim there's no narrative about Christology is <laughs> right. not very accurate, given the fact that those books are out there. Uh, obviously, Larry's book is is really the 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 work that's the most extensive, uh, cataloging uh, how Christology developed within early Christianity. He obviously is writing an alternative to Busset's famous work, uh, where you know he argues that uh, Christology was was more of a Greco-Roman sort of uh, development, whereas Larry argues something very very different, and 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 shows, and I think it's fairly universally seen now that that the highest Christology was also the earliest Christology. Uh, something that Ehrman technically doesn't deny, which is really interesting. Um, he, he sort of, even at one point in the book, sort of admits that, uh, but then sort of quickly says, yeah, but, he, but that wasn't the only view. There were other views that were lower. And so even he has to sort of concede at the end of the day that the, early, that the highest views of Jesus' Christology were not late, but, but, but actually quite early in the game. And Dr. Hill, there, in, in your chapter, um, could you talk a little bit about how Ehrman uses the, the terms orthodoxy and heresy in previous works compared to his latest work, you may you make the point that yeah. there may be a, a little bit of a shift there. Well, I know this this was rather shocking to me. Uh, anybody who's who's read a lot of 
Ehrman's books knows that he is very fond of the terms proto-orthodoxy and proto-heresy or proto-heterodoxy. Right. But in this this book, he he drops that and uh, simply talks about early orthodox and heterodox and so forth. I was I was very uh, taken by that. I'm not sure if that it, it really shift, uh, signifies any any shift. Uh, some of us have been have been commenting for years that that's uh, that's that's kind of a well a prejudicial way of of putting things in itself and uh, doesn't really uh, it, it, you you end up defining things by what you think they eventually become rather than what they are at the time. It's it's anachronistic in itself. Um, but he drops that, and I, you know, I want to encourage that. But I'm, I'm really not sure if he's doing that simply for uh, communication reasons, or if there's a real change of heart. That the the whole idea behind the proto-orthodoxy, proto-heresy, is the is the notion that in early Christianity you have no such thing as orthodoxy. All is diversity, and. Uh, as practically as many writers or people as there are, there are different views. So there's no there's no orthodoxy in terms of a mainstream. There's no orthodoxy in terms of uh, a kind of a top-down uh, hierarchy in the church. So it's more or less a free-for-all with various strands moving. So then he can look at certain people like Irenaeus or even before Irenaeus, um, Justin and and uh, Polycarp and say, well, they're they're sort of on the road toward orthodoxy, so we'll call them proto-orthodox. They're the side that eventually won in the uh, in the ecclesiastical wars, but uh, there's really they're no they have no better claim on on the original teaching of Jesus than do uh, you know a number of other groups uh, out there. So mm-hmm. that was that was very interesting to me. Yeah, and in chapter eight, you you deal with here. You title this an exclusive religion, orthodoxy and heresy, inclusion and exclusion. And in that chapter, you speak about theological exclusivism. And many people may think that that's the sole domain of conservative churches or conservative <laughs> Christians. Um, is that indeed the case? Well, of course it isn't. Um, you know, many of us would have uh, stories to tell. I I, I tell one there uh, for my own life of pretty shocking but i guess not so shocking yeah 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 well uh liberal christians can be uh, quite quite exclusivist as well uh and other people are exclusivist as well it, it's it's kind of a it's a straw man sort of a sort of an argument it's the kind of thing that you read time and time and time again in in ermin's books uh as undertones or as as outright statements, just how intolerant and judgmental of the orthodox or proto orthodox are are depicted as being, and that's that's a it's always a wrap on on current believers. If you believe anything like what these early Christian believers, these 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 heresy hunters believed, you know, uh, there's there's this underlying um, criticism on people who are intolerant, but. Uh, of course, intolerance is found all over the place. Uh, it, the way I see it, I mean, I, I think Ehrman has just exchanged one orthodoxy for another. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an interesting section in his book where he talks about doing history. And what 
is what is history, what qualifies as doing history, and what doesn't. And if you read that, it's it's really kind of uh, eye-opening because he essentially says you, you can only do history if you're sort of playing by the rules that most historians play by. And then most historians don't allow things that are supernatural to come into the conversation. So you really only, uh, if you're not playing by those rules, you're not doing history, which is a curious kind of orthodoxy. I mean, it's uh, you you can be excluded from the uh, the guild of, of historians if you don't play by their orthodoxy. Um, but he doesn't seem to recognize that uh, he's he's done just the the same thing as he uh, you know criticizes other people for doing, having a set of orthodox uh, beliefs and practices. Uh, so yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. It's it's kind of a uh, it's something that we run into all the time in in his works. But this this kind of uh, uh, ad hominem argument that uh, uh, Christians uh, are not people, or the Orthodox Christians are not people you'd want to imitate uh, because they're intolerant. And intolerance intolerance plays really well these days. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's almost the the unforgivable sin the arch virtue to be tolerant to be tolerant exactly (laughs) and just a a quick relevant plug too um mike has a an article on gospel coalition that just came out today on um that very topic and gives a couple historical answers uh mike do you want to summarize that real quick i think it's relevant to what we're talking about yeah the article today on gospel coalition just argued that the charges of intolerance and the charges of being Hateful to humanity actually are very old charges, all the way back to Pliny the Younger and even under the reign of Nero, uh, as Tacitus records. So it's interesting to look at it from a historical perspective. Um, you know, Chuck's right about Ehrman. Ehrman, you know, claims to be sort of a neutral historian without any uh, interest in such things as, as, as morals or absolute truth. But then kind of he slips in his own moralizing through the back door without really admitting it. Um, I wrote a, uh, a review of Ehrman's book here as well that actually had a couple different parts. and. One of the parts of my review actually dealt with his moralizing in his book because he doesn't only charge Christians with being intolerant, as Chuck noted. He also charges Christians with being anti-Semitic. Um, and actually, he charges early Christo- certain versions of early Christology as, as being the, the grounds for anti-Semitism, yeah. which then he calls horrific and evil and so on. So he comes pretty close to just outright saying early Christians were anti-Semitic and evil. And when I, in my review, I said, well, what place is this in a historical account? You know, now you're making moral claims and, and moral conclusions. And uh, speaking of things like good and evil, where are these moral norms coming from? Um, you know, where, why are you inserting them into the conversation uh, without any regard for where you're getting them from or what grounds you have to make those claims? And so Arminius seems completely unaware philosophically that when you make moral claims like that, you need to have some sort of philosophical justification for them. He just seems to think that if I can, I'll make a moral claim and I don't have to give any accounting for it at all, which, you know, once again points out his unawareness of these sorts of things. Yeah. Right. There's a vacuum that's left. It seems like this is just a boilerplate accusation that's across fields. This comes up in political sphere and philosophical sphere and obviously biblical studies sphere as well. Yep. I, I just think it's very unfortunate in, in this book and in other books that he comes he comes around to that and there there is there's frequently this this charge that that uh early christians you can read contemporary christians there too uh are hateful they're anti-semitic they're that you know you you're never allowed to forget um the uh, anti-semitism in the early church or 
or the uh, the Inquisition or the the Crusades. Uh, you you can't get very far from that when you're reading one of his books, unfortunately. Switching gears a little bit, uh, Dr. Hill, can you talk about the analogy that you make in this chapter between early attempts to preserve the biblical texts uh, through textual criticism and those kinds of things and early developments within theology? I, I like the comparison that you make there. If we look in a number of, of fields, the the earliest attempts at doing certain things, uh, such as, uh, in this case, Christology, uh, I drew the analogy with, uh, with copying manuscripts and, you know, the scribal tradition. Earliest attempts have the potential of being the best in some ways. They're fresher, they're closest to the source, and yet there is uh, usually some need to go back and revise and see that, you know, the, the first attempts were not, were not perfect. And we we find that with with uh, with manuscripts, uh, obviously there's there's something in, uh, inherently valuable about the earliest ones that we have. They're closer to the original, uh, but they weren't necessarily done by the best uh, copyists. So there is reason to practice textual criticism and so forth. Some of the later copyists were actually better. Uh, the same thing with w- in Christological debates. Uh, some of the earliest expressions may have been fresher, closer to the uh, to the original, but they prove over time maybe not to have been uh, the most um, uh, foolproof or safe. Uh, the errors are exposed, and um, certain expressions are are found to to have potential uh, holes. And so, in that sense, theology does develop and. Uh, uh, there, but there's always a a backward uh, bent in in Christianity, uh, a backward thrust towards the original, towards the, you know back this back to the Bible is the, the section where it, uh, is what a title I gave to the section on that. Uh, there's there's a movement to get back to the original uh, to to become more and more biblical in in Christian theology and Christian practice. So. Uh, I think that's very significant. You know, there are many different examples to uh, different approaches to these questions. And Bart Ehrman brings up this notion of hetero-orthodoxies and and Christological dead ends. And there are several different examples that we have with adoptionism, docetism, Gnosticism. Could you introduce some of these ideas to us, and how does Ehrman use them in in his narrative? And and, um, how how are you criticizing and correcting some of his views? Well, part of what Bart does, and he he does this generally very well, is he always does try to educate uh, in his books, and you can you can always learn a lot. Uh, to some degree, his descriptions of early developments in Christology are instructive. Uh, you can learn a lot that from that. There were there were early uh, problems uh, in the church. Uh, or just outside the church, movements like Docetism um, or full-blown Gnosticism. Docetism was the idea that uh, there was never a full incarnation; that there was that Jesus only seemed to be human, or there are different versions of it. Jesus was human, but that he was visited by a divine spirit. Uh, there, there are two or three different versions, but they all agreed that that there was no full incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
there were other uh, errors along the way. Uh, one that came, became pretty prominent uh, towards about, about the beginning of the third century was was modalism or monarchianism, and which said that the three persons of the Trinity uh, are really simply modes of being. There is only one God, and he has these three modes of being. Uh, there were the Ebionites, who uh, evidently never believed that, that Jesus was God at all, in any sense. Now, the way Ehrman wants to, to frame this, and it's, it's, it's a nice rhetorical uh, ploy, you might say, is, is to, to point out the ironies, what he, call, what he sees as the ironies, that sometimes the things that were completely acceptable in the early church turned out to be later called heresies, and people who believed them were persecuted. Uh, this is this is something that I think he finds very very meaningful. Uh, to I would never deny that 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 never took place at all. But I think that he has has uh, has greatly exaggerated uh, what actually happened. And in in one in his most important uh, example of irony, I think he's just got it wrong. Uh, and that is this idea that the uh, the Ebionites supposedly preserved the Christology of the earliest Christians, and that is that uh, in, in Ehrman's presentation, that Jesus was a man who was adopted by God, exalted to divinity. He was adopted to be the Son of God, and that meant elevated to, to deity. Uh, but, of course, this was a deity on a lower plane. But... He says the great irony is that's what the original Christians believed, but by the second and third centuries, these people were condemned as heretics. Um, well, of course, first of all, it looks like he uh, he hasn't really uh, read the uh, the views of the Ebionites uh, correctly, which is very surprising. You know, he's given that he's he's usually uh, you know it makes pretty pretty uh, many sound uh, historical judgments, but. But the Ebionites, as far as we know, never believed Jesus was exalted to deity at all. Uh, our reports never. Uh, our reports say that they they believed he was uh, uh, he was a good man. He was he was blessed by God. He was the Christ, but their Christ was a human being. Uh, and of course, Ehrman thinks on the other end that he's established that. The earliest Christians, well, that's what they believe, that Jesus was a, a man who was exalted to deity at the time of the resurrection or maybe at the time of his baptism or maybe at the time of his conception. Um, but, you know, Mike and I would both agree that uh, Ehrman has not established that case either. So uh, that one particular irony that he says is the biggest of all, I think, flops. Mm. So... And you found a, a, an actual group of modern day Ebionites too, at least online, yeah. didn't you? That was yeah. interesting. Yeah, that was that was a that was a very interesting discovery in in writing the book. Yeah, I didn't know this group existed, yeah. but uh, that was interesting reading uh, reading their website, and I did quote from the website there, which really just uh, reiterated what I what, what you find in the early Christian sources. They they. Uh, regard Jesus as a man, pure and simple. And they consider themselves true Jews. And they are the true Christians, the Christian Jews. 
So, uh, yeah, that was that was a little bit eye-opening. It reminds me of a, an NPR story I heard once. I was driving to class when I was at, at Westminster, and I heard some man giving a, a historical treatment of Calvinism and Calvinists, and he was just fascinated by this, this group of people that are known as Calvinists. Mm. And then he goes on and on, and he says, and you know, I came to find out that there are Calvinists today. Yeah, right. And I just, you know, in my car said, and I'm one, driving around here. And uh, That's hilarious. goes to show, you know. My, my daughter nights. had that experience. My daughter had that experience in one of her classes in college. Yeah. yeah. She had to like go Like this remote school. tribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's yeah. These strands are still around. Yeah. Mm. Even the ancient ones. Yeah, we find not not only um, these heresies popping up in different varieties of late, but also people actually claiming uh, the historical name. Even that's something of a surprise. Yeah, and and just uh, as a last, you know, sort of exclamation point on that, the topic of the ironies. I mean, what I find would would be really ironical if if Ehrman's view is right uh, that the early Christians uh, just believed that Jesus was uh, blessed by God and so forth, and never really claimed to be God, and his followers didn't think he was God. The early Christians believed exactly what the earliest non-Christians believed. You know, that would, I mean, I think that's an irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And on this general topic, I'm, I'm interested in both of your takes on Tertullian and what Ehrman does with that, and partially because I think there are um, there's the content that that he obviously wants to put forth, but also there seems to be um, maybe even some scholarly issues going on with how he presents his case. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what, what he does with Ter- Tertullian and how he, he wants to make his point on Christology? And then, um, I guess, obviously involved in that is, is how he does it, which seems to be, well, it raises some questions. He wants to fold Tertullian into uh, into the irony uh, that, uh, ironically, here's, a, here's a, a church father who's seen as orthodox, but but he himself, uh, if you look at his writings, wasn't all that orthodox. So the argument is that uh, Tertullian is actually a uh, subordinationist, and that would be the idea that uh, the son is subordinate to the father, and therefore that's, a, that's an inadequate, uh, non-Nicene view of the Trinity. Uh, but, of course, there are different uh senses in which you can talk about Jesus being subordinate. Jesus says in, in John 14, 28, uh, because my father is greater than I. That, that has been a, a verse that's, that was discussed uh, quite a bit in the later Trinitarian uh, discussions. But, but um, you know, Jesus is talking in, in terms of his messianic mission at that point, uh, and Tertullian actually quotes that that section, um, but he's not talking about uh, Jesus' you know, inherent relation to the Father and his uh, whether he's derived, whether he's a uh, um, uh, created being or not. So I think that the charge, and I, I think most um, scholars would agree with that, the uh, the charge of subordinationism in Tertullian is uh, a bit anachronistic and and not fair. Um, uh, it, Tertullian has so many other expressions where he's he's very clear 
that they the uh, that the father the son the spirit are of of the same substance one subst one divine substance um and there's not uh inherent uh subordination mm. so hmm. Okay, now, yeah, that's helpful. Go ahead. Mike, I'm wondering what your your thought is or or how you might enlighten us in terms of the role of Nicaea on all on all of this. I mean, in in Bart Ehrman's response, he even says it, you know, it would be rather naive to say that Ni- Nicaea was the place at which, you know, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power <laughs> to paraphrase the Bible in a terrible way. Um, what role did Nicaea play and, and how does that contradict this evolutionary view that might be proposed? Yeah. I mean, just a quick word also on the Tertullian text. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this reveals a little bit about Ehrman's methodology and in, in terms of finding contradictions, maybe when, when, when they don't actually exist. Um, right. He has an amazing propensity to look at any author, including New Testament authors and find a way to make people disagree when a closer examination and given at least a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, you realize quickly that maybe they don't disagree near as much as he might think. Um, and I think the situation with Tertullian is a great example of that. And when you read Tertullian, I could see at first glance coming up with that conclusion. But surely as scholars, we're, we're able to read beyond first glances. And as Chuck has already pointed out, when you start reading the fuller context, it's clear there's not a contradiction there. I mean, at worst, Tertullian is imprecise. Uh, or at worst, he's simply not fully explaining everything in the way you might at Nicaea. Uh, but surely that doesn't necessitate a contradiction. Um, uh, and so what you what you have here, I think, is the seeds of Nicaea um, that that maybe were more fully articulated in Nicaea. And so Nicaea is less creating something than affirming what's what's long been true. Um, Nicaea is something what, that has been designed to articulate more fully and more comprehensively what Christians have always believed, but in a way that interacts with concerns of the day. In other words, people are saying, look, we need a a way to state this. We need a way to say this. We need the right vocabulary for this. We need to interact with our critics. So Nicaea functions to deal with those issues, but it doesn't function to create something new. Um, Rather, it's affirming at least what in the minds of the people at Nicaea think that Christians have always believed, and of course what the New Testament teaches. And so there's actually an analogy here to the way the canon developed. Um, You know, you look at canon declarations in the 4th century, People think that that created the canon, but actually it, it didn't create the canon. It just simply acknowledged what had been true for a long time and also interacted with critics and doubters. And I see it functioning very much the same way. Yeah, fascinating. That's helpful, too. There's a sharpening, I, a, uh, a sharpening effect as, as the doctrine is further articulated in the face of adversity and, and uh, critics, Arius and, and others who might... Uh, Challenge uh, traditionally yeah, I mean, this held. Is actually, use. the mm-hmm. effect of of, of, her, of false teaching. False mm-hmm. teaching forces your hand. It makes you say things more more clear, and it makes you even come up with new language, right? Which isn't at all inappropriate. And mm-hmm. so, yes, of course, post heresy, you could look back to earlier writers and see how they might be more misunderstood than they would have been in the day that they wrote the thing. But that's, of course, just what happens naturally when people start pressing back and start uh, challenging church teaching. Of course, you have to start. Uh, uh, you know, making things a little more precise, but imprecision is not a, is not an error. Mm-hmm. Um, imprecision is simply imprecision, um, and and that is a is a distinction that I think needs to be kept in mind when we analyze these texts. Mm-hmm. You know, I might add also here in this discussion that Ehrman uh, does this with the New Testament writers. Um, I'm I'm perpetually amazed at how he's able to find things that 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 uh, in the text that make contradictions out of things that just. Have no reason to think yeah. are. 
Um, and I, I brought up in my own review of Ehrman that he largely bases his, his discovery of contradictions on the argument from silence. Um, if, if one particular New Testament author doesn't say everything about Christology, then he must not believe all those other things, um, which, of course, is a fallacious line of argument. Um, but it's amazing how often Ehrman uses that line of argument to make a case about how New Testament authors really do contradict each other. Mm. Yeah, amen to that. Mike mentioned the canonical lists, and I uh, just want to point listeners to uh, his convocation lecture that um, he did recently at RTS Charlotte that was, I, I thought, a really clear presentation on a very early canonical list from um, Origen. And uh, we don't need to get into all those details, but um, it, related to this, uh, you know, in, in kind of a general way, I thought it was a, a really good supplement to a lot of the things that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Now, clearly here on the Trinity is one good example of something that's hard to understand. Um, that certainly doesn't mean we need to throw it out. The Bible is not going to reveal to us things that are uh, that we're able to exhaustively understand. If if it did, then then we would be God ourselves <laughs> rather than God being who he is. In chapter 9, uh, Dr. Hill, you, you start to continue to narrate the story of uh, people and movements in the early church, especially as how they handled things like paradox, um, and the Trinity being example, Jesus being both God and man. They're just difficult things to understand. They seem to defy the limits of human reason. Again, doesn't challenge uh, the veracity of those facts, but how are we to understand paradox here, and especially as we look at it in terms of Ehrman's deconstruction and his newly coined term, orthoparadox? Yes, well, that's, uh, that term, orthoparadox, uh, is designed by him, I think, to, uh, again, to, to make it seem very difficult for those who might believe in, in uh, Jesus' full deity and humanity, that is, uh, Christians have always believed in, we might say, paradoxes, things that on the surface appear to be contradictory and uh, paradoxical. They, they, they don't fit together. Uh, that Jesus is, is true and full, uh, full deity, but he's also truly and, and fully uh, human. But he comes up with this, he, he calls them orthoparadoxes, as if to say that uh, th- these are problems that the Orthodox got them in, getting themselves into by uh, kind of foolishly accepting these two contradictory uh, ideas. <clears throat> so he, he he wants to press the contradictory nature of this, and uh, seems to think that it's it's self evident that anything that you have to call a paradox, uh, well, that's that's just a, a counsel of desperation. You're you're in desperate straits already. But what I find is the that uh, uh, we, we go back to the New Testament documents themselves, and uh, what we call para- this paradox is not something that seemed to have embarrassed the early uh, the, the writers of the New Testament and the early Christians. It's what they gloried in. I mean, you find it in the same this very same author. Uh, you know, John one one is uh, John chapter one is, is the one of the prime examples, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him. But then by verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that is, that is the, you know, the, the zenith of, of the, the paradox right there. And, it is, it's, and, and John goes on to say, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. 
I mean, this is this is what he gloried in. It's not something that he uh, shied away from, was embarrassed by, uh, felt he had to sweep under the, the carpet uh, or, you know, smoke and mirrors to distract people away from. Uh, that's the that's the approach that Ehrman seems to think that we ought to have. But uh, I think what he's refuted by is simply the fact that the the uh, the New Testament writers themselves uh, face this head on. We have it in in the first chapter of Hebrews. We have it in in first chapter of, of Colossians. We have it uh, you know all over the place in the New Testament. But those places in particular that the the deity of Christ. Uh, and his humanity. So, uh, I, I think this is again. It's it's designed to appeal to the modern audience that uh, that is that is that that wants to believe that uh, uh, anything that sounds contradictory has got to be a, a huge embarrassment for the church. Uh, but you know, right off the, the bat, I mean, I think that that he's he's got it wrong. You know, one of the figures you bring up here on the subject of the orthodox and the paradoxes um, is Justin Martyr, a very significant and important figure in the early church. Um, How does Ehrman treat Justin Martyr and some of his views? Uh, You know, his views are not fully developed, and certainly, uh, you know, we're not going to read his theology today in our ST classes you know, in, in in the sense of a fully developed systematic theology. We, we read him historically, and still a lot of good there, but how was right. Justin Martyr understood, and, uh, you know, how does how does Ehrman uh, take it with his particular view in mind? Well, again, um, much as with uh, Tertullian, uh, Ehrman wants to find uh, inadequate uh, expressions. Well, he wouldn't put, them that way, put it that way. He would say that... that uh, Justin is another example of a of a subordinationist, and again, just like uh, we said and Mike said about Tertullian, uh, what you what you really have is uh, a case of uh, some imprecision at times, and uh, maybe some statements that are not completely guarded. Um, that's that's at the worst. There's certainly no no idea in in Justin. That uh, that Christ, the Logos, is a created entity. Mm-hmm. He uses he he's one of the first to pick up on the Johannine uh, language of uh, the uh, monogenes, the uh, the begotten or only begotten, or uh, however you want to translate that, the only Son, and sees that as uh, he he's in that sense like a son from a father. There's a, a derivation, but Justin is very clear that uh, the Logos, Christ, is on the creator side of things, not on the created side of things. So Ehrman seems to, you know, constantly wants to be saying that these early Christian writers thought of Jesus as something less than deity, full deity. He's he's in the category of angels, uh, but again, if if there's one. You, you might be able to criticize uh, Justin in, with hindsight and say that he didn't tie up all the loose ends. But one thing he was very clear on was that, was that Jesus, the Logos, is creator. He's creator with the Father. He's not on the side of the creation. So I think that for, for Justin was, was the key. 
You know, as we engage in any of these studies, looking at Justin Martyr, or certainly looking at the biblical text and the historical record, we're always coming with a, a certain set of presuppositions. That's inevitable. Um, it doesn't mean that, that we're hopeless and that we're all going to just arrive at a result that we come with a priori. However, you need to account for those and, and understand uh, that, that that is happening. Um, is that something that you, uh, you question whether Bart Ehrman's fully accounted for his own presuppositions as he's come to engage in his study? Where do you feel that he's fallen short at a more methodological or, I'd go, meta level? Uh, that, that's really behind and undergirding um, his entire study, not just any individual point. Well, in this book in particular, where he is, uh, we're talking about the de- development of Christology, um, I argue that he has uh, presupposed his conclusions before he gets there. That is, it's, it's particularly visible in this kind of chronology of Christological development that he has. What comes first? Uh, what were the earliest beliefs about Jesus, and then how how did they come into line? Um, in particular, you know, he goes to the epistles of Paul to find the earliest uh, examples of Christolo- Christological belief, and and uh, most scholars would think that's that's good. Uh, they're the earliest. Most people think the earliest uh, writings in the New Testament, but within the Pauline corpus, there are. Uh, embedded uh, some pre-Pauline statements here and there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 through 3 and 4, I think it is, uh, the Philippians 2, 5 through 11 passage, uh, and a few others. And out of those pre-Pauline expressions, uh, Ehrman finds, you know, what he thinks are the beliefs of the earliest Christians. Now, the problem is that some of those expressions, the, the Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 passages, uh, focus on the exaltation of Christ, uh, his resurrection from the dead, and others uh, give a fuller expression of his incarnation. So, uh, Ehrman calls them exaltation Christology as opposed to incarnational Christology. But the, the fact is... Uh, both of these, if you if you want to see them as as not complementary, which I would argue with, but he, you would you don't have any indication of which of those is earlier than the other. Uh, they're both both sets are pre-Pauline. How does one determine which is actually the first? Urban thinks it's very clear. Those that st- the earliest ones were the uh, exaltation Christology, that is. Jesus was a man, he rose from the dead, he was raised from the dead, and he was exalted to divine status. And after that, people concluded, well, maybe he, was, maybe he was God before that, and he actually became incarnate. But the problem is, there, both of these sets of statements are pre-Pauline. You can't tell which is earlier. You have, to, you have to assume which one is earlier. In his case, I would say that they're complementary in the first place. Uh, but so you can say the earliest expressions we have of Christology are like uh, what we have in in Philippians uh, two, uh, that Christ being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, etc. And then he was exalted by God. So this is among the earliest uh, among the earliest expressions we have of Christological belief, and it already. Uh, shows belief in Christ as 
as pre-existing in the form of God before his incarnation. So I think it's at, at that level we see, even despite his presentation, that he's starting out with a chronological grid, a uh, chronological, um, um, naturalistic chronological grid, uh, by which he interprets everything else. Just chiming in on that, um, I would also add one other factor, which I think Ehrman doesn't give consideration to, is how uh, if Paul has an exaltation view of Christ based on Romans 1, Philippians 2 shows an incarnation view of Christ, um, which Chuck just pointed out. So are we to believe that Paul actually had two contradictory views in his own letters um, and that he couldn't even identify the fact that his views were contradictory? Um, I mean, this is this is where you get beyond the, the, the belief of this, um, you know, Paul is going to adopt the hymn in Philippians 2, if in fact was a hymn. Um, surely Paul understood the content. Well, if he had a, a, a sort of an adoptionistic uh, exaltation Christology, then why would he adopt a, a hymn that had an incarnational Christology? Mm-hmm. Um, what The better interpretation of the evidence is just to suggest that at different times in Paul's writings, he emphasizes one component of Jesus' Christology. Sometimes he emphasizes his exaltation. Sometimes he emphasizes his incarnation. But if you give someone the benefit of the doubt, you realize that, wait a second, maybe these are really complementary. Maybe when you look at the full orb picture, you realize that Paul thinks that Jesus was both incarnated as God and also exalted in some fashion post-resurrection, um, which, of course, everyone won't do that. Instead, you have to believe that Paul has internal contradictions with his own books and doesn't even realize it. Right. And if, if Paul, and that's an excellent point, and if Paul can do that, why not the Christians before him as well? <laughs> the earliest Christians who allegedly came up with these expressions. Exactly. In other words, why can they not express things incarnationally at some times and, right. and exaltation at others and still mean that both are true? Right. Right. It seems like a critical approach that isn't applied to other historical records either, that it's um, unnecessarily um, strict or tight. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is the case. And this goes back to my earlier point, which is that your only conclusion from that is that someone wants to find a contradiction because yeah. historically Ehrman knows this. Uh, he, he is, he's a sharp enough historian to know that, that when an author writes about something, he doesn't write everything. And that sometimes he just tells you some of what he believes, but doesn't always tell you all of what he believes. And so surely every passage is limited in some sense to what a person's totality of beliefs are. And so Ehrman knows all that, so piecing it together into one puzzle is a, is, a, is a completely viable option. So why does he consistently not take that option? The only conclusion you can reach is that he doesn't want to take that option, uh, even though it's a viable one, because he wants there to be uh, discord within the writers of the New Testament. I actually heard, uh, I don't know if any of you others, uh, others of you heard the interview that uh, Bart and Simon Gadigal did for uh, Unbelievable. Uh, yes, I did hear that. Yeah. Yeah, there was one point in in one of them, uh, the interviews they're talking about, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. That's where uh, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And at one point, uh, Bart says, Well, if it says that God the Father, from whom are all things, well, that all things have to have to include Jesus. So Jesus has to have been created. Um, now, I think Simon was a bit taken aback. I would have been taken aback. Like, who argues like that? 
But then if that's the case, you have to go on to the next phrase, and when it says, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, well, if the all things included, you know, Jesus in the first phrase, it has to include God in this case. So, so Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, including God the Father. So that it just uh, that that to me kind of epitomizes uh, the the lengths I think to which he will go to uh, uh, boulderize things, to 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 mess things up, you know, to uh, complicate things, and uh, to find contradictions. Yeah, just adding to this, this is actually why I concluded in my review that I'm a little surprised that Ehrman wrote this book. I, I feel like this is his weakest territory, yeah. personally. Um, you know, you know, he goes after textual criticism, and he goes after, you know, the canon and other places, and he can make, he can score some points here and there. Uh, but on Christology, I was really surprised he wrote the book, because I really think all the evidence is stacked significantly against him. Uh, what I said in the conclusion of my review is I'd, I would have preferred Ehrman just to be honest and say something like, look, Jesus thought he was God, the early Christians thought he was God, but they were both wrong. That would have been a much more sort of tenable view. Um, instead, he wants to say Jesus didn't think he was God and early Christians didn't think he was God, and it wasn't later until they thought that. But that's a much more difficult view to show. Um, and I think the, the, the latter is a little bit uh, you know, more dishonest, and the former would have been a much more sort of you know, own up to the fact that the evidence is early and just say they were wrong. Jesus wasn't God, even though he thought he was. And the Christians are wrong. Jesus wasn't God, even though they thought he was. Hmm. Maybe a, a practical question here at the end um, as we wrap up things. How would both of you encourage people in the pew who may be confused by what they're hearing from the academy on these topics, the back and forth, um, how would you encourage them, either resources that you would point to or maybe just kind of general categories and, and overall um, pointing in the right direction um, for those listening in? You know, there, there, are, there are good books out there, for one thing, that are, that are being written. Um, you know, Mike's done a, a couple books on the canon, and uh, uh, we both worked together on a, on a book uh, that has to do with New Testament textual criticism. Uh, we're, we're very blessed to, be ha- to have people who are working in these fields these days. Uh, but, you know, I think one thing to, to emphasize is that uh, we should not be afraid of these topics, any of these topics that uh, Ehrman raises or uh, people in universities raise. Uh, in, in the short term, sometimes they're, they're raising very difficult issues, issues that Perhaps uh, we in the church have not always uh, done our, our jobs in trying to explain, but uh, in the end, in the long run, I think it's actually going to help the church. You know, Mike alluded to the fact that uh, uh, often in the history of the church, uh, great uh, confessional statements have arisen out of uh, out of the the, the, the eruption of heresy. Uh, well, I think you know we we see that now, even with. Even with Ehrman's books, I think in the long run, <clears throat> this is going to help the church. Uh, it may be it may be rough waters for a while for some of us as we as we sort through this, but uh, it's it's better to talk about it in the church and among believers rather than you know, let's say to send send people off to uh, to university and get uh, bombarded uh, unprepared. I certainly would agree with with Chuck's encouragement there. I think, you know, when it comes to lay people who hear about these debates and maybe read Ehrman, 
you know, one point I often make with them is that as, as, in as much as Ehrman seems to represent the modern academy, and that may seem daunting, it's actually ironic that many of the positions Ehrman stakes out are actually the minority report amongst many scholars, um, even secular ones. This was actually true in a lot of his work on textual criticism. It's funny, he goes almost against the, his own field uh, when he becomes the ultra-skeptic uh, in textual criticism. And I think he's doing that again here with Christology. Uh, even, uh, you know, other scholars that, 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 that make no profession of faith and, and even the field in general go against his view here. Um, you know, Hurtado and Bauckham, I think, have the lion's share of, of followers with their general reconstructions of Christology. And so just one encouragement for folks, not the only thing to say, of course, is that, look, you know, don't think Ehrman represents everything uh, on the academy. Uh, he's, he's an anomaly himself, uh, oftentimes, in what he writes. It's a helpful reminder. And if people are going to hear these arguments and hear these things because they are so pervasive, even in popular media, um, the very nature of what Bart Ehrman's doing is finding its way in the New York Times and other media outlets. Uh, the Great Courses has just announced a, a new course with uh, Dr. Ehrman teaching. So there's all sorts of things that are always uh, popping up and people are going to encounter them. So whether it's you or whether it's uh, the people in your church or your family members, uh, you're going to encounter these issues. And this book is a helpful book that, that clarifies the issues and provides a, a helpful and, and truthful orthodox response to the issues. Uh, so we want to thank uh, the authors and the contributors to this book, How God Became Jesus, The Real Origins of Belief in Jesus' Divine Nature, published by Zondervan, 2014. And we especially want to thank our special guest, uh, Dr. Hill, for joining us. Thanks so much, Chuck, for coming on the program. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. We also want to thank you, uh, Dr. Kruger, for joining us. I do want to point people to uh, various uh, websites and, and books. Uh, the website, michaeljkruger.com, has a wonderful load of information here, and you can find uh, Mike's book, The Question of Canon, Challenging the Status Quo in the New Testament Debate. You can also find the book that was co-edited with, co-edited with uh, Dr. Hill, The Early Text of the New Testament. Links to those books are here, and of course, one that we very much appreciated, Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament books. We have interviews on, on these books available in our archives and uh, a wealth of good information and helpful things that are going to encourage you in your faith and also help you to answer tough questions uh, from critics. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. It's great to talk to you again, too. Thanks, guys. Always a fun time. Yeah. We can visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as how to get in touch with us. We do have our conference coming up here October 10th through 12th. Uh, 2014 here in Grays Lake, Illinois, just north of O'Hare Airport in Chicagoland. If you'd like more information about that, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org slash conference. Uh, We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.